This is Nicole Deffenbaugh. If you are enjoying the podcast, we invite you to tell your friends and family and like us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast. My mom, when she was pregnant with me, uh, about three, three and a half months, was having some problems and ended up in the hospital for about a week, uh, threatening miscarriage. And so I suppose technically that's my first uh, encounter. But then um, I was actually born two months early. So I spent the first week of my life, maybe a little more than a week, in an incubator and the first five total weeks of my life in the NICU at uh, one of the local hospitals in Nova Scotia. So I guess you could say that my entry into the Canadian healthcare system was a little bit dramatic um, and happened as I uh, was coming into the world. And I talked with my mom a little bit about this because obviously I don't remember. And she emphasized, you know, that she didn't pay for anything. None none of this cost her anything except stress and worry and time off work. Welcome to Health Stories, interviews inside the healthcare system. In this podcast, we invite you, the listener, to hear the real-life encounters of clinicians, patients, caregivers, and their loved ones as they navigate the U.S. healthcare system. My name is Nicole Defenba, and today we are joined by Dr. Shauna McDonald, who is going to be talking about the Canadian healthcare system. So a little bit different than our normal podcast, um, but I think it's an interesting one for everybody uh, because we're talking about a uh, universal healthcare system, which I think fascinates everyone, especially as we go into a midterm election. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. McDonald. Thanks for having me. Uh, so she is joining us via Skype. And uh, so you told us a story about how uh, your mom went into the, well, I should say you went into the Canadian healthcare system early and then uh, you were in the NICU when you were born. Did she tell you anything else about what it was like while you were in the NICU? Um, well, I know, for instance, that, I mean, obviously, just as the, is the case here, she was discharged long before I was. And so um, I know that they would have to drive into the near, neighboring town to visit me. Um, I was four pounds, two ounces when I was born. Um, and I was very long and very skinny. So there are these, uh, odd pictures of me as a newborn in the incubator with little mittens on my hands. Um, and I am not what you would call a beautiful newborn baby. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so, but, but I, you know, obviously I was well taken care of and, um, despite the fact that I was born so early, um, have had really no developmental issues related to that. And, um, you know, the only traumatic elements of that were the fact that I was born early and the earlier incidents, um, where she had to be in the hospital for about a week. Um, she actually missed my aunt and uncle's wedding (laughs) because Mm -hmm. she had to be in the hospital. But uh, honestly, there are no negative stories surrounding that time. Um, just the stress and the nervousness. And I think that's what we, you know, we're, I know I am and, and other listeners might be interested in well is we've, we've heard over the years, other universal healthcare systems 
especially the Canadian healthcare system. And one of the things I've heard many times is how there are long lines. If you need medical care, you have to wait. Um, there are, you know, traumatic horror stories of people, you know, with um, gunshot wounds or, you know, broken or severed limbs who are waiting and not getting the care they need. So, um, did she tell you, which is why we, I, I'm interested, was interested in having you on the podcast, um, because I think there are a lot of misnomers. And again, you can't speak on behalf of all people's experiences in Canada with their healthcare system, but you can at least speak about some of your own. Um, so did your mom say any, so you said it wasn't, you weren't charged anything. So how long were you in the NICU again? Uh, five weeks. Five weeks. And she didn't pay a dime. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Okay. So that's amazing. That's something I think most of us are not familiar with. And my sister was also born prematurely, not quite as much as myself. Um, and she was not in the NICU in the same way or anything, but my mother also, my parents also were charged nothing for the entirety of that birth and neonatal experience. Did she, did your mom ever tell you anything about what the experience was like? So you didn't pay anything, but, um, well, I guess I should go back to, have, have you ever been in the, in, in a hospital here in the United States? So not as an inpatient, but I have, um, gone to the ER multiple times. Um, and I've also gone to, you know, various clinics and, and uh, primary care okay. physicians. So we're gonna we're gonna get into some of those those stories. So for our listeners, are coming up, so we get to hear some of Shauna's experiences. But when I think of being in inpatient and being in the hospital here in the U.S., one of the criticisms, but also one of the luxuries, is that you're you're provided everything. You know, you're given food you know, for the parents, and you have multiple clinicians coming in and out of a hospital room, um, all asking you, of course, similar questions, and, you know, how are you doing, and you're, you're sort of given um, really, and I use that word luxury um, in scare quotes, but this luxury sort of um, care. Did your mom talk anything right. about what it was like? Now, you were in there for five weeks, but she wasn't in there for five weeks, right? You know, I think what's interesting is she has never really talked about it, and I think that's because it was unremarkable um, okay. in the sense that, um, you know, my, my experience visiting folks uh, in the hospital in Canada, um, my, my sense from hearing from them is really that you, you get everything you need, you, you are fed, all of the clinicians that need to be there are there, the nurses are wonderful, um, and the difference is you just don't, you don't get a bill, you don't pay anything up front, you don't, when you are, when you go through the intake process, um, I mean, obviously if it's something traumatic, someone else is doing that work, but even if you are um, getting outpatient care in the ER, um, the only thing you do when you walk in is you hand your health card to the receptionist um, and explain what's going on, and then there's triage, and that's it. I mean, there's there's wow. no exchanging of any other information because all of your data that they need to know is attached to that healthcare card. So your experiences have only been in Nova Scotia. My my personal interactions, yes, have only been in Nova Scotia. But um, the way it works is that there is a Canadian healthcare system 
but the provinces and territories have their have the sort of mandate to actually implement it, and they have some freedom of choice. Um, but your healthcare is portable, so okay. if I were to have a Nova Scotia healthcare card, but be vacationing in Ontario, I could use my Nova Scotia healthcare card to get services in Ontario. And they would be the same. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, what is this healthcare card? Because when I think of healthcare cards, we think of insurance cards, right? At least I do. And for those in the United States who have insurance, so again, want to pause and and recognize that not everybody has insurance, um, and also that everyone's experience is definitely not the same either, um, especially right. you know in the U.S., um, which we're gonna I'm gonna get to that question. But tell tell me about this magic card. What what is on this healthcare card? So the healthcare card, um, we actually just, you know, in, in regular language call it the healthcare card, but um, the name in Nova Scotia is it's a medical services insurance card um, or a medical services insurance program. And um, to my knowledge, if you are, you have to be a citizen um, or a legal resident, I think, and you have to be, um, there are various other elements that you have to prove to get the card. Um, but it's, you don't pay for the card either. Um, and it is uh, a card with your identifying information. Uh, it doesn't even have a picture on it, so it's not an ID. Um, but it's linked to your health services account. Um, and it's not a payment. It's sort of proof that you are eligible to get the medical service and also a record-keeping you know, uh, system because the doctors and the hospitals and, and whoever else you're seeing have to get paid somehow, right? And so that payment actually comes from the government system, paid for through tax dollars and other mechanisms. So the card is sort of your ticket um, in, into the system. And I'm sure there are different um, cards for different provinces. Okay, so this is your golden ticket. It sounds like it's an opportunity to really track um, you within the system, and so it, it shows proof of identification that you're a Canadian citizen. And every time you go, it uh, enables the government to really see what services were provided to you, etc. Uh, so, so if you're not Canadian and you're visiting, do you know if you get covered at all? My my knowledge of that is somewhat limited, but I my sense is that once you are no longer paying into the system and once you are no longer, um, if you are not a citizen, you have to pay. And, and so I do think how that happens varies from patient to patient and institution to institution. So I have heard of people getting healthcare without having to pay, but I also know that even myself, for instance, now that I'm no longer living in Canada, when I go home, I have to make sure that my U.S. medical insurance will cover my, me when I'm traveling because oh, I will still have to. So even I though you're a Canadian to. citizen, you still have to pay into, you have to pay when you get services in Canada because you're not regularly paying into the healthcare system anymore. Correct. Oh, that's interesting. Because I know there are many people... Um, you know, that go over into Canada to get services to get cheaper medication. So it's still cheaper, but they're Absolutely. right. But they're they're paying for it out of pocket. And you, so your mom had you in the NICU for five weeks, and you didn't pay a dime. 
I just want to go back. I just want to let that sink in for everybody listening. I can only imagine. I just, you know, I just had a bill from last year. I've mentioned another podcast and I'm still, I'm still getting phone calls. You still owe money on it. And I wasn't even admitted. I just went to the ER and I still, you know, my copay, I think was 150, but it would have been $300 if a quote wasn't medically necessary. Which again, I, I can't even, I don't even want to begin that conversation about what's medically necessary. But a $300 copay just to go to the ER, and that doesn't include staying in the hospital. You know, and right. so we're talking, this is, I mean, the number one form of bankruptcy in the United States is still due to healthcare costs. So, um, yeah, but we're, we're going to get into some of the, the more specifics and talk a little bit more about the equity or inequities um, across the, the system as well. So, um, so paint me a picture now that we've talked about how you came into the world and it didn't cost your mom a dime. Um, do you have any um, examples of your own of experiences that you remember um, in terms of going through the, having been in the healthcare system, sort of how you made a phone call if it were sort of an outpatient appointment and you know, what it was like when you were in there, the services that were provided and what it was like after. So the before, during and after of a visit. Sure. So I'll use um, an example of an ER visit. And I think I, I need to give a little bit of context. And so in Nova Scotia, you know, like everywhere we have colloquialisms. And so um, for, fun, for some reason, we call the ER outpatients. Oh, like, Okay. Like we call the physical location going to outpatients. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, that's why I was getting confused with the okay. But it's the ER. Okay. ER call so okay. I have lots of memories actually of um, going to the ER in my local hospital, not because I was particularly uh, you know, ill as a child, but um, in cases when we couldn't get an appointment with my family doctor or it was just so oh. acute that waiting for an appointment wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. So things like colds and injuries and stuff like that. So you went to the but, ER for colds for colds because if you couldn't get into your doctor's office. Oh, interesting. Absolutely. And so what that would look like um, is making sure that the ER was open, which is a, a bit of an odd concept. Oh, um, that is odd. <laughs> but essentially, and this is a bigger problem now than it was when I was a child, but even then, um, not all of the local ERs would all be open at the same time. And so you would make sure that they were open and that there was a doctor there. So... Um, I don't remember doing this, but I certainly remember my parents calling ahead just to say, like, okay, who's the doctor on call? Kind of trying to figure out, like, is it worth it for us to go sit there um, <laughs> and wait to be seen? Okay, wait. Um, I got to stop you because something, something's really important here. You could be bleeding to death and the ER isn't open. Sort of. Okay. Um, <laughs> The ER being open is, I think, more for the less emergency kinds of cases. So there is all, first of all, there would always be a close by ER open. Oh, 24-7. If you were coming by ambulance or if something really horrible was happening, then um, there would be someone on call that would be able to see you. So, but because of the way the system works... A lot of people end up using, you know, if they don't have a family doctor or if 
for whatever other reason, they use the ER or outpatients as that kind of a service. And so for people who, who just have a cold, you know, the ER being open is not as big of a deal. But yeah, it's, it's actually a big problem right now. There is a doctor shortage uh, in Nova Scotia. Um, and so there is a lack of, of family doctors for a lot of folks. And also, um, you know, sometimes the ERs are not open. So there for, are for, for non-emergency. For non-emergency care. Okay. So, so walk me through that. So <clears throat> let's say, so I got all, all these questions. <laughs> so you have an upper respiratory infection, let's just call it this, right? And you've been right. sick for five days or seven days, I guess in the U.S. It's, let's just call it a week. And it's not getting better. And you're like, okay, it's been long enough, but I want to get in. Is there a typical sort of waiting time? Is it is it on average a week or three months? You know, when you try to get into a doctor's appointment? To a family doctor. Yeah. Um, I think it's hard to give an average, but I know that it, that many people wait at least a few weeks, maybe a month, um, for an official appointment with their family doctor. Yeah. Now in Nova Scotia, or at least in my town, the people who are family doctors in town are also the ER doctors on call. Oh, oh okay. Wow, okay. Sort of a system. And so you could still end up seeing your doctor if you go to the ER. Right, but that's, yeah. But so... so what I'm hearing you say is if you have sort of preventative care or you know that you need to get a checkup, you, you call your doctor. But if you've got a sore throat or you've been having an upper respiratory infection potentially for a number of days now, you don't call your doctor, your primary care physician to get in. You go to the ER. Yes. Okay, so it sound, if, if I can make comparisons, and maybe I shouldn't be making comparisons, if I can make comparisons, it sounds more like urgent care. So ER is sort of that urgent care as well. Like <clears throat> you're like, look, I can't even see my doctor, but it's not a true emergency. You might go to like urgent care or something. But again, in the Canadian system, you either have a PCP, your primary care doctor, a family doctor, or you have the ER and that's, that's it. And that's very true in Nova Scotia when I was growing up. Although now I've actually heard of a few urgent care type facilities um, opening up. And I, I don't know if that is to um, accommodate for the doctor shortage or if it's private um, entities popping up. Um, but I know there are a few now that didn't exist before. When I was a child, the options were family mm -hmm. doctor or the ER. So if you had to go to the ER for your upper respiratory infection, and I mean, you could keep waiting days or, you know, but you're like, look, I can't get in. My doctor can't get me in for another couple weeks. So I'm going to go to the ER. It happens to be open. Um, how long are you waiting? It really depends. Um, I remember wait times of a few hours. Um, I have heard of wait times of up to eight hours. Mm. Um, but I didn't experience those. And, you know, that's something that I think is important to point out is that um, my memory is that you would go to the front desk with your health card um, and get checked in, and then you would wait. 
but the first step would be to see a triage nurse. Um, and oh. that triage nurse would evaluate the severity of um, whatever your issue happened to be. And so in this case, if it was an upper respiratory infection, but I could wait in the waiting room because someone else had a more urgent issue, then that wait time would be longer. Right. Which I guess is comparable to the U.S. too in that, you know, when you show up, I remember I was having um, some kidney issues and I showed up and it was during flu season. Um, so the kidney issue I was having wasn't necessarily true emergency, but it was very painful and, you know, and uh, I was there four hours, I think three hours, or I think it was three or four hours before I was even seen. Um, I'm assuming, having interviewed the first podcast interview actually with somebody who worked in the ED emergency department, and he was talking about um, a little bit about having worked in that department, and if there is an emergency, it gets bumped up, right? So it sounds like there's this sort of priority list of um, how acute or how um, emergent this situation is. Um, so it sounds, if I'm assuming correctly, it sounds like it might be comparable um, to how things are triaged in, in the Canadian system. That sounds right. And I think that having been to both, um, my sense is that the intake is actually easier in Canada. You don't have to sign any forms. You don't have to do a whole lot of paperwork. Um, right. But you may wait longer or you may wait the same amount of time to be seen by the actual doctor yeah. for whatever your issue may be. Right, and the magic ticket you're talking about, right, this magic card that you use, right? So you might get, you might, um, get into the system faster, but you might not be seen any faster. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you, say, needed an x-ray... Um, we'll get into more complicated kinds of tests in a minute, but if you needed an x-ray, which you might for a respiratory kind of issue, right, um, a chest x-ray or something, then that happens and you never see a bill for that either. So none of these quote-unquote extra services, um, you don't have to do anything to make those happen. They just happen as they need to happen um, if it's in the moment. Yeah. If it's something that you need that can wait, then that's, you know, referrals and specialists and things like that. Um, but in the ER, if something is needed, it's just done. Yeah. I mean, with your consent, it's just done um, without um, any question of insurance or cost or concern. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> which makes me think a couple things. So, because um, I do want to get into the test because we're almost at the halfway point here. Um, and this has already been very fascinating <laughs> about the differences between the system. So one of the things I'm hearing, I think, is that if you go in and some emergency doctor decides that the x-ray that you need isn't really emergence, emergency, that they would give you a referral and you could wait many more weeks to potentially get what you need, as opposed to in our system, if the emergency doctor declares that you need something, you get it now. Yes. So things like uh, CT scans, MRIs, um, those are the big ones you hear about, uh, could take, for non-emergency health issues, could take uh, some time. They could take months um, oh, if it's for something that is not acute or is not life-threatening. Um, but someone's deciding that, someone else is deciding that, where if you go in to see your doctor and they say, you need this, 
um, I don't think it's an emergency, but let's do this scan. You can oftentimes make an appointment and get it done within a couple days or a week, and you don't have to wait months to get it done. I mean, isn't the assumption that if you need an x-ray or an MRI <laughs> that there's probably something going on that you would need an x-ray or an MRI? But again, like I said, if my arm was broken and I went to right. the ER in Canada, that x-ray would happen right away, obviously, right? And my care would be given right away. Um, so it's, thing, you know, for things like maybe, I don't know, a herniated disc or like... Which <laughs> can still be very painful, and, yeah. Yeah, but not necessarily life-threatening um, or debilitating in the same way. So, or not necessarily, right? And so typically those kinds of tests get ordered by either the doctor you're seeing in the ER or most often your family doctor or a nurse practitioner. A lot of folks have nurse practitioners as their PCPs right now. Um, and so, you know, that referral goes from their office to the specialist office. Um, and then typically I think the specialist office makes the appointment with you or makes the appointment for you and then tells you uh, when that appointment will be. But for things like blood work, um, those kinds of tests, that's that you can get very quickly. Um, oh. There's a whole sort of system. Um, we have always done that at our local hospital. There are certain hours for lab work, and you show up, and you take a ticket, like, from one of those. I'm sure it's not this way anymore. But it used to be where you would take one of those tickets from one of those ticket uh, dispensers um, for your number in line. And if you were a diabetic or had certain other issues, you got to go first. Um, and, you, you know, if you were there early, you just waited, and everyone gets their blood drawn in order, and then... Um, you find out the results uh, a little while later, like a week later or whatever. So that's interesting. Even if you have some more severe conditions, you get to go first even when your blood's drawn. Yep. Well, that's interesting. So, so there's definitely this sort of system of priority for people who are deemed as needing it. So there must be something in the system that says given the number of chronic conditions you have or certain types of conditions, you're sort of first in line for things. I mean, I think that you have to, you have to vocalize that. You, it's not oh, automatic, okay. but, um, but, yeah. and, and I think for the diabetic issue, it has to do with fasting and the morning and making sure they can oh, eat. So yeah, they can oh, eat. I think just, right, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. But regardless, there's like one place you go. So one of the things that was most confusing to me when I first moved to the United States was if I had to get lab work done, I was so confused about like, where you go to get that to make that happen um and you know to me it was like you don't just go to the to the er like to a particular part of the er not even the er but a part of the hospital that does lab work that was very confusing to me yeah yeah there's labs everywhere and now there's there are even systems um organizations that are paying for your lab like you would pay them for your lab work because people aren't getting the labs they need they're not getting the tests they want um, so even that's changed. Okay, so what other stories? What other stories do you have? Um, can you share with us about your experiences in the Canadian healthcare system? Sure. So one of my earliest memories, actually, um, is related to healthcare. Is I was I have this memory of being in a room, a, a hospital room. I could sort of smell the hospital smell. Mm -hmm. um, sitting in a chair with my legs dangling. Um, hooked up to a, a respiratory machine of some kind. Um, I was in the pulmonary unit because I uh, was asthmatic as a child and would 
and still get bronchitis basically every time I have a head cold. And so, um, but I have this distinct memory of sitting there, I was probably five, um, with a bunch of people who were decidedly older than I was, uh, hooked up to this enormous machine that was helping me um, get my breathing treatment. Um, and then in subsequent years, uh, what we would do, um, and I don't know if this was a new technology at the time, but we would rent or borrow, I think, I don't think we paid for it, um, a machine from the uh, pharmacy. Oh. And take that home and do treatments at home. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I have that distinct memory of being of being in the hospital. Um, I also remember having many um, injuries. I was a martial artist as a teenager, and so um, there were multiple times that my 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 dad, who was sort of my companion in martial arts, would uh, you know I'd roll my ankle, and he would throw me in the car, and uh, <laughs> off we would go to the hospital um, to to the ER just to get checked out. And those I don't remember being remarkable in any particular way. The other thing I remember is um, having a wonderful family doctor um, who, I, if I'm not mistaken, actually delivered my mother and delivered me. But I could be could be mixing. He he certainly had been delivering babies for a long time. Um, but he also was a, was a family doctor and, um, his office was in a house in like a kind of ensuite kind of deal. Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember it being, um, like a happy place to go. He had toys, he had, um, a beautiful fish tank. He always wore like Hawaiian shirts for some reason, the fact that we were in Nova Scotia. Um, and I just remember not being stressed out in any of those moments and, and, and feeling welcomed, um, in, into that really sort of clinical health kind of situation. Um, and then finally, I guess I would say in something that I've been thinking about that's really interesting to me is that growing up in Canada, going to the doctor felt very different from like vision care or going to the dentist. They, they were separate in my mind. Hmm. Um, and I think some of that has to do with the fact that the healthcare system seemed so, um, not seamless, but, uh, congruent to me. Everything seemed to kind of work together. Whereas the, you know, had to go somewhere else for the vision care and, and there was insurance and payment and I didn't quite understand it all, but it was a separate system. And, and I still think of them as very separate. Um, and I don't know, I don't know if I think of them as separate in the U S healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, there's some interesting um, just felt cultural differences that um, I've experienced, but, um, but for sure, uh, they said they felt like separate kinds of services to me. So there's a, there's a lot I want to unpack that you talked about. So one of the things is that you had a breathing treatment at home. Um, and I know some people um, that asthma, for example, COPT, but, but, um, you know, let's say asthmatic child might have breathing treatments at home. You, I'm assuming again, you didn't pay for any of that. Nope. Yeah. So got uh, for the treatments, yes. So mm-hmm. any any of the medicines that were required, um, we do pay for those. Um, oh, okay. But, but they're cheaper than they are in the U.S. And there are insurance plans for medication coverage that many Canadians have. Yeah. Okay, so you're you're not paying for for other bills. You do pay for medication, but it's significantly cheaper. 
again going back to people who cross over the US Canada border in order to get their medications okay you remember your um, uh, so going to the hospital a lot for for twisted ankles and stuff okay um, do you have any memories yes. about again like how long you waited in order to be seen for your twisted ankle I mean my memory is on the order of three four hours yeah um, you know right. and of course my ankles were always generally fine even though I waited that amount of time but um, <laughs> but it was it was again I think the thing that is most prominent to me as I think about this now living in the US is that we never thought oh it'll get better on its own like we don't have to go to the ER right. it was always just like let's just go get a check like let's make sure that it's okay um, right. because there was no question of how much it was eventually going to cost. Um, whereas here, I think I think long and hard, even about the copay, and I have good insurance, but I think long and hard before I go to the hospital. Hmm. Yeah. So you're, uh, and uh, you know, I'm thinking of billboards that advertise how long the ER wait is. Have you seen these? I've seen uh, so an advertisement for a hospital network that will say our ED, our emergency room wait time is, and it'll have sort of a up-to-date supposedly right that's the assumption is that this up-to-date wait time it's 30 minutes 60 minutes four hours just seems like a long time to go to the ED emergency department so the ER I should say and wait um, and so yeah. it's 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 sort of that um, while I don't have to worry about paying for this but I also think in terms of, of people's time would you wait four hours to go to the emergency room for um, for a rolled ankle you know, and so yeah. it's it's almost like you're weighing the cost and the time. Um, no, it absolutely it absolutely is, and and the time, and also the you know, if you start to think about if you have say I don't know a really nasty head cold or the flu or some something where you're feeling miserable, but you're relatively a healthy person, so you know you're not in a great danger. Yeah. Um, you also think long and hard, right? Do I want to mm -hmm. sit in the emergency room for right. this many hours? <laughs> feeling this miserable, right? right? Even though ultimately the goal is to get better. Um, but again, I come back to, you know, my premature, my prematurity and my time in the NICU. My dad's a diabetic. Um, my parents have had various, you know, obviously health issues over their lives. Um, my sister as well. And just the regular kid stuff that happens as you're growing up. That would probably amount to if, if it was a different kind of healthcare system, millions of dollars worth of care. Whoever's paying for it, millions of dollars worth of care for my family. So you do have to get separate insurance for dental and eye? Yes, um, or, you, or you pay out of pocket, right? So, yeah. um, so the way the system works is, like here, many people have insurance, supplemental insurance for dental, vision, and sometimes drug plans, but also, I think, um, there are other kinds of supplemental insurances through their employer, mm -hmm. um, or I think there are some you can buy as well, um, especially if you're self-employed or, or what have you. And then there's this whole other element of the system that I would compare to American Medicare, um, uh, okay. or Medicaid, which, which is the one for low income. And Medicaid, yeah, Medicare is over a certain age, so... So we also have systems in place for seniors, so there's that. Um, and, and, and so there are other elements of the system that help care for this supplemental kind of care for those who cannot afford insurance or who don't have insurance through their employer. So, um, I, you know, I can't help but ask, is, 
it sounds like there's a lot of equity, you know, that everyone is, um, doesn't have to pay. Uh, it sounds like in the system, it really depends on the severity of the issue, not necessarily your income, um, you know. And, and so is the healthcare system as equal as it sounds? Um, well, no system's perfect, right? So I think that where the inequities come in is slightly different. And so some of what I've noticed is that the qual not so much the quality of care, but the access to care may depend upon where you live as a Canadian. Um, mm -hmm. And so if you are in a small town or an economically depressed kind of area, then you're, as you might expect, right, your institutions may not have as much as many resources. And so that includes things like hospitals and the healthcare. Um, there's also some inequity in terms of the distribution of doctors um, for lots of complicated reasons. Um, and that, you know, that inequity can be really damaging, um, particularly if you live in a rural area or have to travel far distances for certain kinds of care. So there are inequities. Um, I think there's a floor on the inequities, if that makes sense, where um, chances are you are going to get treated and you are not going to have to pay for it. But there's going to be some complexities sort of above that floor um, in, term, in terms of access. And so I'm from a pretty rural, pretty, um, you know, working class kind of part of Nova Scotia. And, and definitely I've, I've heard stories and, and new, you know, news media kind of attention to these, these questions of whether people can access and get the same quality of care throughout the province and throughout the country. Depending on where you are, you might get different care. Um, so do people, can, so can you, can you pay for better care? You know, so, um, so can you, can you, you know, I, I don't know, can you pay, can you go somewhere else and, and get better care? Can you pay for better care, you know, like you, you can in the U.S.? So not really. Um, in the sense that you may certainly have to travel for better care. And so I think that would be within Canada, certainly people, I think, travel to different regions or different hospitals for particular kinds of care. So that's one thing. Um, there are some Canadians who, if they have the means or if they have a very particular kind of health issue, may come to some of the hospitals um, or facilities in the United States uh, for care and, of course, take the financial hit that that may bring. Um, it's pretty atypical, I would say, for Canadians to do that. I think it's uh, either you know, if you're really wealthy and you have the access and ability, or if you have a very particular healthcare issue or your child has a very particular healthcare issue, a certain kind of cancer, a certain kind of, um, you know, uh, genetic disorder or something of that nature, where there are specialists in the U.S. that we don't have in Canada or different access to technology. So, you know, I think that probably the financial inequity follows the regional inequity in some ways. And so it's probably more likely that Canadians who want better services for their family and have the means to do so move to the place where there is more access, right? They move to the city or they move to a, a more economically stable area. 
Yeah. And there and and just having interviewed somebody recently as well about talking about rural health care, you know, here in the US, you might get lucky. Um, but you are more likely to be limited in the specialists and the and the physicians or clinicians available in a more rural setting. So it sounds like there's similarities. <clears throat> but um, we hear about people from the U.S. crossing the border to Canada to get cheaper meds. Um, and we also know that there are people from around the world that come to the U.S. for specialized care um, and to yes. get um, sort of, you know, the, the care that they can't get in their country. Um, and recognizing that there's a cost associated, but as far as you're aware, people aren't flooding across the Canadian border in order to get the care that they need. No, no, no. <laughs> um, and I guess growing up, I took this for granted, and I didn't know this, but um, the universal health care system in Canada uh, prior to World War II, we had a private healthcare system, and then in the subsequent decades, through a series of measures, generally begun in Saskatchewan, um, the province would do something and then it would spread. Um, we gradually got to the system we have now, um, which really only became fully um, manifest actually in the 70s and the 80s. So. Which is interesting because in the U.S. it was sort of the opposite. My understanding is we used to have more of what we think of as universal coverage. Um, in the movie Fix It, um, for those who are listening, if they want to see Fix It, um, they talk a little bit about the history and how we became more privatized. Uh, so it's interesting thinking about the history of these two systems. They seem sort of, um, and, and this is a correct assessment, um, yeah, to have gone in the opposite direction. So on the Government of Canada website, uh, under Canada's healthcare system, they provide a, essentially a definition or a description of the healthcare system. And I just want to read it so we can hear what it sounds like. It says, and I quote, Canada's publicly funded healthcare system is dynamic. Reforms have been made over the past four decades and will continue in response to changes within medicine and throughout society. The basics, however, remain the same. Universal coverage for medically necessary healthcare services provided on the basis of need rather than the ability to pay. You know, I think one of the things that I am most, like in thinking about talking with you today, I was thinking about the Canadian healthcare system. And I think the ideal of universal coverage for medically necessary treatment really, like it sounds sort of cheesy for me to say this, but it really undergirds the system. Um, and like, if you look at various websites or information provided by the Canadian government, that's that's the rhetoric, right? That's the conversation: is that no one will be denied care because they cannot get, they cannot pay for the services, but also that there's this value of um, providing healthcare that is portable, that is um, useful, that includes preventative care, that includes creating programs for people to, to live better lives. Um, and like all, all ideals, right, it's the way it gets, uh, the way it's manifested in practice is not always equal um, and is not always perfect. And so I think you'll hear many Canadians complaining about the Canadian healthcare system, but you'll also hear those same Canadians being grateful and thankful that we have at least the healthcare system that we have. So I think it's it's kind of um, an imperfect but valued system. Great. And what a wonderful way to end. So I, I, I like those final thoughts. That's um, 
that's a good way to, to frame it. So thank you so much for sharing with us, uh, Dr. McDonald, your personal stories and insights and um, really allowing us to hear what it's like to have lived in a different healthcare system, especially one that has universal coverage and um, touching on the pros and cons of what that's like, especially as we go into uh, midterm election. These are things to consider when you are um, electing representatives. So thank you again for joining us, and uh, we want to remind you to like us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast. Also find us at NicoleDeffenbaugh.com slash blog, so if you'd like to leave a message, uh, or if you're interested in being an interviewee. And finally, we are on Twitter at Stories Health. <laughs>